Well, it's been a while, and I am fascinated with what's doing going on with AI and large language models. Brian Young and I have been chatting back and forth, and we have a little bit of a disagreement about what they are and how they work versus how the human brain works. So Brian Young and Ben Jaffe and I decided to record an episode of Geekspeak. I'm Lyle Troxel, and this is Geekspeak. In its 22nd, 23rd, 24th year? I don't even know. If one of you would like to provide your definition of a large language model to get us going, that would be great. Who wants to Yeah, a probabilistic word calculator. Oh, that's so wordy. Okay, how about a word calculator? What's it mean to calculate words? A number calculator, you put in a bunch of numbers and you put in operations. And a word calculator, you put in a bunch of words and the operations are implicit. More words. The operations are whatever it feels like doing. And it, mm-hmm. it smooshes that against all of uh, its internal workings, which were weighted based off of its training data, which is basically the internet. And then it predicts what comes next. Brian, you want to add anything to that? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a calculator, all right. But um, it's just statistically predicting what the next word should be based on its prompt. I mean, we can talk about it in simple terms that way. Okay. Can I ask a question? Uh, the, I, yeah. I, I hear people say that a lot. Is that is that the next word or the next maybe word set of words? Well... Word well, they, for they word, speak kind of. Actually, fragment. It's it's actually syllables, actually. It can't but, possibly be or lo- just syllables. phonemes, phenomes. I never had to say it, that. It is. Um, because what you want to do is you want to make sure that you understand a word that's spelled wrong as the word Wait. that was supposed to be spelled correctly. So it's really You're much more complicated. You're predicting the next word with the history of not just the word that comes before. You're predicting the next word with like all of the history of what's come before. Yeah, because like a Markov course, chain is is basically just yeah. you have the word before you choose the next. Word. So, the the thing that I want to yeah, go ahead, Brian. Well, I, I just want to make one important point: the the words that it comes back with, uh, what it's aiming for is something that is a stylistically uh, consistent response that you would expect. In other words, those words that it produces don't have to. Uh, be accurate they have to sound accurate to the to the reader that's mm-hmm. what its right. aim is and therefore that's how you get results like uh citing papers that don't exist and citing sources that don't exist or or uh, things like that okay now let's poke at this a little bit what do you need translation is a really easy way to look at this but what do you need to be able to predict words you it's not just the frequency it's there's a lot more complexity to it and when you do these prediction sets based off of like a large, a small data set, you get not very good systems. And for years, for 50 years, we've gotten pretty shitty systems. Small data set, meaning a small corpus that the model was trained on. That's right. When you get to a certain size, though, something else happens. And my argument is that when you get to these trillions of node size, you have a, a fundamentally different quality to it than the simplistic idea of being able to predict. And, and the reason I say that is if, if you were to do translations of things, there are some 
I really wish I had a good uh, uh, simile or ma- a metaphor for this. Um, I have got a, 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 a bottle in front of me, a bottle of pills in front of me. Hear that? And um, I'm, trying to build, I'm trying to build this metaphor at the same time. And I could talk to you about saying, I have this bottle of pills and I have this cup of coffee. And I can construct a sentence about these two things. And in the context of the sentence... You and I, we would all understand how it would work. I would say something like, I was drinking my cup of coffee and holding my container of pills, and I put it inside, and they got all wet. So there's a little bit of ambiguity. Did I pour the coffee into the the container, or did I put the pills inside the coffee? Right? We don't really know. Put both inside yourself. Yeah, I might have put both inside myself. There's a whole bunch of context there. And you need to know a lot to actually do it correctly, because it wouldn't make any sense to say that I put my coffee cup inside the pills. So if I structure the sentence in a kind of ambiguous way, that's one of the things that we know that didn't happen is the coffee cup itself didn't go inside the pill bottle because we know how big coffee cups are and we know how big pill bottles are. Because we humans you're talking about have a mental model of the world around us and we have an understanding of size and shape and things like that in relative size and shape. And that's how we can come to these conclusions. That's your argument. No, that's why, that's a question. Yes. Okay. So the argument of intelligence that we have versus these language models don't have is that, well, you, we can do that and understand how, what can go inside of other things. And a predicting algorithm that understands language, it wouldn't be able to do that. It would just say things that were nonsensical, like the cup went into the, the pills. Because why would it, how would it not know that? But the thing is, ChatGPT isn't doing that. It does understand the pills can't go in the coffee cup. When I say understand, it won't construct sentences that are weird like that, as commonly as random. How is it doing that? It's trained on a lot of language, right? Yep. And encoded in the language when people talk about bottles of pills or coffee cups is information and maybe it's able to pick up on signal either about those things individually or maybe from sentences where they're used together. Yeah. You you say ChatGPT GPT does not produce that gibberish response. My it understand- does produce gibberish. I'm not arguing that it doesn't produce gibberish. I'm saying that it can statistically more than not understand the pills can't receive the cup. Uh, what I was going to say is my understanding is that if you were to wander outside of English and use another language, it does uh, return the, the gibberish, gibberish sort of answer. Not that I can do that myself because I don't speak another language. And keeping in mind, if I speak French to you, I will pretty quickly have gibberish going on, even if I understand some fundamentals, because I just am not very good at it. Yeah, but if you know the word for pills, you know the word for coffee cup, and you know the word for into, you'll probably construct a sentence that makes sense because you have an internal model of the world outside of your language. Well, I mean, that's relative to what I understand about the language I'm speaking in. Um, I could understand what cups were in French, but it's possible. It's possible in the language I don't really know very well that a cup is synonymous with a small vase. And a small vase could go inside the pillbox. I don't actually know the full context of it until I'm very good at the language. So when you're not good at the language, you will make stupid mistakes because you don't know what the words are. And that's totally I'm just but let's not dive down that deep. 
my argument in this discussion is going to be that GPT-4 is doing stuff in this paper, is doing stuff that infers that there is actually some level of larger than how we dismiss these language models going on, something else. And one of the reasons I think that this is, makes sense is that... Um, well, actually, let's go ahead and go through some of the examples and talk about why this is fat, amazing to me, okay? My, my favorite one is the unicorn example. Have you both heard the unicorn example? Yes, I have. Let's okay. pretend I haven't. Okay, we'll pretend Ben doesn't, doesn't remember it or hasn't heard it. Um, so this language model had text in and text out. It's all it can do. It, has no, it hasn't processed any binary images. It, hasn't, it doesn't have any kind of... Um, it hasn't trained on modeling images. And, in, and when you're modeling images with a large language uh, model system, you can do things like edge detection, uh, pre-processing, and then put in edges. There's a lot more stuff you can do. It doesn't have any of that stuff going on in, in the GPT-4. So what the, the research papers did is say, hey, draw me a picture of a unicorn. Now, when it says draw me, it didn't actually say that. It said, please use latex, which is a, uh, a type of um, text type of language that can draw, you know, like SVG. Yeah, not the um, material latex. No. It's just spelled, yeah, pronounced so that way. It spit out some text, and if you take that and then render it in a lang in the system that can draw bitmap images, you'll get the picture, if you will, that was drawn. And so it said, Bill, draw me a unicorn, and the unicorn that it produced is, I don't know, it's something like 15 different circles, a big circle for the body of the horse, uh, some rectangles for the legs with hoof kind of marks. There's three colors. It's like a light pink, a dark pink, maybe three colors, a mauve, and like a yellow unicorn horn. And then some circles representing the tail area, kind of, and some circles representing the, he the neck. And over time, as it was training with more and more data, this thing actually got these unicorns that actually get more correct in shape. So not only is that amazing, because how does it know that it, how can it visualize it it also can somehow process the image data in some kind of spatial idea um so what they did is they took a fresh set of the data they gave it back a unicorn uh drawing in in latex without the unicorn horn and said put the unicorn horn back in and it was able to do that so the question is if it's just a language predicting system and maybe it's been trained on a lot of latex files but not i mean probably not a lot of unicorn latex files. How is it able to go from a sentence of English saying, draw me a unicorn to an image being rendered that looks like a unicorn without something other than translation and prediction happening? It, okay. I, I totally give you, that's a mystery. Now, the question is, what, what argument, what are you going to use that mystery to make an argument for? Okay, we'll jump to the meat of it. Do you know what, how you're going to finish sentences? Uh, no, no. As I start speaking, I generally don't. I tr probably think a, a, a concept or two ahead. When I'm really good, I've got like maybe 15 concepts laid out that I'm trying to get to, but I usually get sidetracked. Okay. And where do they think those concepts they're queued up somewhere in your brain. They're like some part of you is holding on to some concept. You have kind of a, an inkling that there's more you want to talk about. There's other topic we haven't come to, but it's not like a clear list you could list out. It's kind of comes from the engagement of the thought. And there's the words come to you. It's not the words that are queued up. It's the concepts that are queued up. 
the words are almost it's almost magical that they come out and amazingly so most of the time grammatically correct and that the way I just magic said that is sentence, doing a lot of work the way that that sentence just came out was very odd i would re-edit it if i was writing it but in speaking it just kind of came out in that strange way way where i corrected the grammar over time how am i doing that right so we don't know I, I don't know that we have a description of that that uh, any of us could find. I'm definitely not planning ahead and looking at the possibilities and choosing them. In, I'm not. I'm not aware of how it happens. My brain does it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've often thought uh, around, well, programming and also just basically speaking, like, man, would I ever be screwed if this broke? Because I have no idea. I have no idea why I can talk. I have no yeah. idea why I can program. Um, so, yeah, I think a big part of my intelligence is being able to speak and be comprehensible and be be comprehended by my fellow humans. What That's was that? Big. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Whenever I talk about how language happens, I'm thinking about it as I go, and it's always bad. Yeah. I don't think there's very much difference between us and laying large language models. Like why, what, what's so, what's so amazingly different about my ability? I make mistakes all the time. Right. So we, we are creatures. If you want to look at it as a brain, we're, we're a brain that has all of this way to get input and express itself and, and do many experiments to figure out whether how it expressed itself worked. And yeah, that, that is, I mean, that's the goal with these, these uh, machine learning systems is to hook them up to more inputs and more feedback systems to determine whether what they're doing is in some way correct or not. Have either of you used a lathe in a machine shop? Yeah. I've seen it. I haven't done it. You've seen it, Brian. Okay. What do you know about using a lathe in a machine shop? Wait. What, what's a safety thing you know, Brian? Since Ben and I have used them, what do you know about it from a safety perspective? Uh, well, uh, it spins very fast and therefore, uh, things can fly off of it in a dangerous way or the tool cutting it could possibly kick back at you. Have you ever heard anything about touching versus not touching it with your body? Uh, nope, but, um, it's safer to touch it. (laughs) Are you serious? No, I'm no. (laughs) Right. So friction is, is going to create all the heat. So you know a whole bunch about using a lathe and how to be safe around it, but you've never used it. Your body's never engaged in using one's one. How'd you learn that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember talking to a friend who was an airplane pilot, and I had only ever studied the basic air, uh, surfaces of an airplane. And uh, he was talking about uh, maneuvers he was doing. And I said, well, if, if you're going to do that, don't you have to counteract because this force will... Uh, do something else. It's like, yeah, how'd you know that? Um, this, the same way, I, 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 I think I build a mental model. I, I, I have a, actually, I have a very visceral feeling. I think I translate the thoughts into a physical feeling that is completely within my own head. Okay. Does that get you anywhere that you're going? Yeah. My point is that you <laughs> mostly learn that through language. Like there is some embodiment qualities that you use because your body engages in the world and does things that these language models are never doing. But a lot of it is from intellectual discussion. I like, don't think 
We I don't think... We produce mental models from hearing from people. Yeah. I mean, we also... I think one of the reasons that I have any intuition about the way an airplane works is uh, a couple of things. One is learning about it on YouTube and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, learning about it when my dad talked about it when I was a kid. Um, but I think my visceral understanding of like what how things would work came from a couple of things. One is like when, when um, I was a kid and my parents would be driving, I'd have my my hand out and kind of like go up and down in the wind as it went by. So I guess I kind of like gained a visceral understanding of control surfaces and like what wind and velocity does to those. Another was um, Lyle, you and I worked at Netflix. You work at Netflix. I used to. And uh, there's a plane that goes down to LA and I took that plane one time and it felt like all of a sudden the experience of the plane, you know, blazing through the air was a lot more visceral i felt the back hold on a second my cat's about to break something okay i felt the back of the plane and the front of the plane moving independent somewhat independently from each other and like following each other um in in some turbulence uh none of that was from language mm -hmm. that was from like a, a a visceral understanding from my body experiencing it and then also microsoft flight simulator yeah, and, and later X-Plane, which gave me a more accurate version. Um, there's also stuff that I kind of know about what can and can't be done because of math. So in, in physics. So like I can I can take a piece of paper and I can run it full speed, like a standard A4, a like eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, uh, 20 weight, whatever, and run it full speed with stretched out in front of me and it will not break. And I can probably hold on to it the entire time. But if I take that same thing and stick my hands out a car window that's going 200 miles an hour, I know that thing will just be ripped to heck. I've never done that. I've played with it a little bit, but it's just that I know that at that level, the amount of pressure that's happening is so much greater than the paper could be. And I just made up a number of 200, right? It probably happened at 40 miles an hour. I don't know where the breaking point is. Have you ever been in a car at 200 miles an hour? No. But my point is that I also have these ideas that come about because I visualize it based off of mathematics and the paper I've used. Like, there's a lot more going on than me just testing things. So, what, so what I, my, yeah, what I think is interesting about all these examples, we've talked about a visceral physical understanding. Me and Ben have. Uh, you're talking about mathematical understanding and somewhat of an experiential understanding from something related to wind and holding up paper. Uh, I look at these as all systems that are separate, but are feeding into a full understanding. Do, yeah. do you, does that make sense? Yeah. So um, that visceral understanding we're talking about I, muscle memory. I, I have a lot of understanding of the battle of the world through the muscle memory and the actions that I do that are successful and I, I really get punished when I mess up. I've got plenty of scars to prove that. Um, a lot of pain that fed into that system to let me know that was the wrong thing. Um, but language is a part of that. But it's one piece out of many, many other pieces. Yeah, I agree. So you're saying, Brian, that we're just reinforcement learning systems. Okay, well, 
That I was sarcasm, have, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely think we are. I don't think there's oh, anything. No, no. I said, I said just very uh, emphatically. Do you think we're just reinforcement learning systems? Yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, I mean, that comes back down to you know, do you believe there's God? I don't. So, is it? Is my? Do I have free will? I don't believe I have free will. I believe I completely a a environmental representation of my genetics and my place in the world as I'm raised. That's it. And you're, you're there's nothing else inputs. going on. There's no spirit or anything in there. There's just the the reality of the world and the brain. Now you could say, well, there's some quantum effects, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't. It's random or it's not random. It's still not something that's controllable. It's we're just meat puppets engaging in a, in a world. And that's magic. I mean, that's amazing. I'm not saying that that's not a great, great thing. I'm just saying that, so, we, we do the exact same thing as language models do. It just happens we have more data inputs. I, you lost me at the last sentence, especially. Also, if we were just meat puppets, wouldn't that imply a creator and controller? No. Um, yeah, a puppet's a bad example of that. Uh, we're not. We're not. Ver- we're we're much more complicated rocks. An emergent biological system. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I tend take- to I, I tend to agree with you, Lyle. At the same time, I leave I leave open completely that I don't have the answers when you get far enough down that road. Yes, I, I agree too. The other thing I wanted to say is that um, a molecule of water is very very different from an ocean. The qualities of an ocean in a system on a planet with wind and creatures inside it, that thing is not understandable by the small aspects of it. It is an emergent thing that's totally different. I think intelligence is more like that than, than anything else. It's, it's big enough that it's complicated enough, and that's how it is. And I know that's kind of a wavy hand kind of aspect of it. I with playing with GPT and looking at that paper and thinking about this, the way I feel about it right now is, oh, anytime you have a large system that has a feedback way, if it's large enough, it will come up with qualities that are very much like us humans, because that's what we are as well. Is there something interesting in the fact that these systems are the way they are because they are trained on us. The, the worst parts of us, to be clear. Um, the internet. And the best parts of us, right? Well, you know, there's some really great stuff scientific, in there. Yeah, a lot of scientific papers were processed, most likely. The, the trolls are overrepresented. Because, I mean, like, whole... if, you take, if, you take, if you take a neuron in one of these systems... And then you make a whole bunch of them and you connect them. You don't necessarily get intelligence out of that. Like you need your training. You need your back propagation. You need like all of that stuff. You need that to feed into the system in order for it to mimic what it's, what it is um, generated from. And you could make some kind of argument about, yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of what these things are doing, right? Is there... Okay, I mimic. Right, and and they mimic, I mimic. Yeah. 
So, but there's a difference. There, there is there is at least one difference. There's at least one difference, which is um, when you come out when you came out of the womb, you were not a completely blank slate, right? Like you started you started mimicking absolutely. You spend right. we we I spend like faces our faces pretty quickly. We spend our first twenty five years especially learning to mimic and for the last 10 of those 25 we think that we're done but we're not baked yet um but like there is something we are starting from right brian you were gonna say something i well you'll you'll notice i'm not coming back and arguing any of this what you're saying I, i don't think is that controversial um the the real question is when we start looking at the tool that we have now in the various chat GPTs, right? What it is useful for and where it's going, how we can imagine it becoming more useful and more powerful in certain ways. That's, that's where I wonder if we're, we're disagreeing or whether we're, we're going to be agreeing. Well, the reason why I want to talk really intimately about what I think our brains are doing and how GPT predictive qualities are, are, not just like it's not just stitching words that are comprehensible it's actually more than that because it has some concept of what like that that coffee cups can't go in pill bottles like it it understands that somehow you're, okay so there's you're more saying it has a concept and i think that's a fallacy yeah, I, i'm saying that it does things that are like to know that that concept exists you're saying i don't think that's different than us you're saying it feels like it has a concept of no I'm saying I'm saying that I don't think we have concepts of that. When we're speaking, it just works in the same way that it that system works. So, I don't when I'm forming a sentence and and you're talking and you talk about uh, it being put inside the other and we're talking about a pillbox and a cup, you instantly think the pillbox went into the cup. You're not going mathematically, does this make sense? What's the visual? Now, if you're a visual person, you might have imagery of that. Some people don't have imagery of that. Both those humans that have the visual concept of a pill bottle and the cup, and therefore they see how they go together, versus a person like me that doesn't think of it visually first, just kind of intuits that the cup was holding the pill bottle. That Those are not embodiment questions at that time. There's something that I've done with the embodiment experience to make subsystem that responds in that way. I'm not, I don't have a, like, yeah, we say we have a concept, but what do you mean when you say you have a concept? I don't visualize it. You do. We have two different ways of conceptualizing that. So that's kind of my point is that I don't think that we have a concept of that, but we can produce thought that that quality emerges from it. And when I say thought, I mean, communicate stuff to ourselves or outlet to other people. And GPT can do the same thing. It can do an aspect of the many things that we're doing. Absolutely. It's only a part of it. So the output is the same. You're saying that what's inside is also the same. That's the tricky part about intelligence and modeling. Everybody always talks about, well, we have a mental model of the world. Well, yeah, you can slowly kind of talk about it. Some people are better at it in some areas than other people. If you ask somebody, like, really, how does a house work, a two-story house? How much space is between the levels of the floor? Some of them will be right. The people that are carpenters will know a lot. 
those mental models are completely formed on how we've trained ourselves. They're not something that we just have. All of us are different in all these qualities. But you just my, said my those mental my, models are. So that's the thing. Is it is it a mental model or is it the thing that we've trained over time to understand in some way? Like, what is a mental model? I guess I'm, I don't understand what you're saying around, like, if we're talking about, if we're saying that we are basically a large language model, right? Um, and that whatever we would think of as us having a concept of how many feet of space or between floors or any of these things, what things fit inside of what other things. Are you saying that those things are implicitly converted to language in our minds? No. Are you saying that our, because like what I'm hearing you saying, but I don't think you are, is that we have a mental model, which is developed through language. But I'm also hearing you say that we don't have a mental model. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, let me, let me try to clarify that. I think that the concept of a mental model, when you really poke at it is elusive. You, you cannot just list out all the things, you know, it's not possible. Our brains don't work that way. Right. So when you wanted to, in, if you wanted to introspect a human, you can't, and you can't also introspect GPT. Okay. Those are two qualities that are very similar. There's just all this data compressed into our, our neural nets that represent flows of data and come up with conclusions that are kind of predictive. The way those things are trained is not as important. Like I think of a human being that's been blind their entire life as still a human being, though a lot of my training has been visual. We have concepts of the world that are non-visual and visual, and we're still humans and we still have thoughts and we still are, can communicate and still have some way of, of sharing that we have knowledge about the world. Okay, GPT so is doing the same thing. It just was trained a totally different way than us. And I don't see a big difference between them. Except for all the parts it's missing. Yeah. I mean, well, you can have a human who has never spoken a word in their life that has no useful language other than, I suppose, well, they could be totally socially isolated. I, I think we probably have examples of this from what I remember. But obviously that person hasn't used the language qualities of their brain and therefore hasn't been trained in a large language, language model yeah. aspect. But that's just one aspect of what makes us thinking emergent creatures. But I think, so the reason why I want to talk with you guys about this is that the dismissive, there's, there's two like kind of large camps right now about GPT. One is that there's going to be artificial intelligence really soon. And it's going to be like a guideline quality in the, and we're going to like, change the world from it, which I think is totally crap. The and the other side. is, this thing is just a predictive system. It's not, it, do, it doesn't do anything interesting. It just makes, it just makes gibberish. These are two uh, of many. The They're just the yeah. two loud ones. They're two loud ones right now. And to my mind, the more interest, I mean, and I think we're going to get into the actual debate. I think the thing that we think is really interesting about this stuff. But the, the point that I'm making is that I do not, I, I lean much more to these things actually having qualities like humans. There is thought going on. Now, there, let me talk about two different ways that we think, okay? Let's talk about two different ways we think. When we say thoughts and thinking, it's very strange. When I'm speaking, 
the way the language is constructed and it makes sense at the end is not something that I'm planning and it's not something that I have my frontal cortex focused on. When I'm doing a task I've done a hundred times, I am not using my brain, I'm using my body and there's systems in place that are, are taking care of it for me, right? I can Driving. wash the dishes without having a lot of thought. But if I instead am like, don't do puzzles a lot and I have to do a puzzle or I'm pulling a, a, a splinter out of a foot, I am very focused and I'm using a different part of my brain. That focused part of the brain, the logical, like the thing that we maybe use for programming sometimes, the thing that you're really focusing that you can't uh, do secondhand, GPT does not have that, right? So, but there's a lot of other things going on that represent my brain working and GPT has some of those. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't argue that. I, I mean, I, I see that in machine learning in general. So the question is, why? So, Brian, when you were talking about, I don't think these things are intelligent. What do you mean by that? So I think first getting back to the two camps you were referring to. Yeah. Um, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that we are using language to talk about these things. And our language is built around human learning concepts, understanding. So the words we use imbue a agency or a uh, intention or a uh, a thought pro a thought process that does not exist yet in these systems. So I, I think everybody needs to be really careful when we're talking about this to separate what is a um, human incarnation of these words versus uh, the machine that we have at the moment. Because it's very, very easy to fall into that trap. Okay, yeah. so, so you're, you're asking me what I think intelligence is. I think back to the whole thing that um, the Inuits, uh, I may have the wrong term there, but um, those native peoples of the Great North uh, have 40 words for snow. They, they have taken what we often think of as one or two or three things, and they have defined it down to 40 different things. Uh, approximately. I may have the number wrong. Um, I think 40 to 50. Quick, <laughs> quick fact check. Thank you. Um, I think intelligence is similar in that there are many, many, many aspects of it. And what we know of as human intelligence uh, may have some additional aspects than some animal intelligence, but that one keeps getting redefined over the years as we learn more and more qualities in animals that meet those human aspects of intelligence. So I look at this tool, uh, these large language model machine learning tools as containing an aspect of uh, intelligence. But just like you see emergent qualities in a large language model, I think there are emergent qualities to combining more and more aspects of intelligence. Ben, you have anything to add to that? It's a lot of words for snow. I, th I feel like I've been very pushy and like argumentative in my stance. And so I'm trying to stop it. No, you and haven't. To both of you. <laughs> Touche. Actually, it's pronounced um, touche. <laughs> so I, I think I understand what you're saying about that. that are, you, are you saying that the, um, the, the 50 words for snow show that there's a lot more 
cultural thought going on to that part of the language. I like think that that culture has expanded out to have more meaning to those things and dove in deeper and understand them more because they have more words about it. Is that kind of why you're the, using that as an example? They can talk about snow in a way that is more precise and more um, creates more understanding than we can talk about intelligence. I think our language around mm-hmm. intelligence is minimal. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. for Now I connected back. Okay. Thank you. So we are deficient in being able to talk about the experience of intellect because we just are not very, we don't have a lot of words for it. Yeah. I I, I think we have more yeah. words and concepts when we start talking about what makes a person good at work. Um, and when we talk about software engineers and what makes them good at work, often we come into a discussion that has nothing to do with programming. It's about mm-hmm. social qualities, those soft skills people talk about. So, yeah. um, but there we have a language that we've built up around it. What language do we have about intelligence? I, I, I feel like at least outside of an acad- academic uh, environment, we don't. I guess, I guess the thing that has shocked me is that when people are dismissing these systems, they just talk about them as if it's unimportant that they can make coherent um, sentences. That, and by the way, a lot of the time they do make a lot more sense than a random system, right? They are normally making sense. There's examples of them being really crappy. And and there's examples the, that are amazing. Like there's one that I have here that somebody was able to diagnose an illness in their dog that saved the dog's life that the two other yeah. vets missed. Yeah. So we, uh, I just feel like Obligatory that, that, to say, do not use chat GPT or GPT-4 for medical advice. Because yeah. it very likely will give you incorrect information. And the I've human, and the human involved that. in that story is a key part of that process. Right. Wait, I'm, I mean, I'm just as much that. as, Ben, just as much as using WebDV, WebDM, Web, WebMD, MD, no. And using... No, I disagree. Because, be, because my... <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, my experience of WebMD is this website is telling me this thing and it's being really cagey about what exactly it's saying because they don't want to get sued and it's got a bunch of weird viagra ads on the side and like that's my experience of i don't know if webmd has viagra ads but you get the idea um gpt whatever i ask it a question and it authoritatively answers me and if it gives me Mm -hmm. the wrong information it will give me the wrong information with authority and confidence and i will believe it even if I go in knowing intellectually, because like we don't have any experience with entities that can talk to us in our language with authority that don't have brains attached. Like that's, that's not just... true. <laughs> well, first of all, um, let's not talk about brains attached or not, but that give false information authoritatively. No, I'm talking about brains attached. I'm saying like they're. But... Why does that matter? <laughs> I... <laughs> Anyway, I, I don't actually de- derail. I just wanted but, to... Wait, no, I, I like that statement. I have people in my life that tell me bullshit really authoritatively. Well, you also have a history with these people, probably, and you know that they well, tell you bullshit. I mean, a great example of that is the entire industry of astrological reading. Yeah. We have it already. It's total crap. Yeah. And it's there. Yeah. So what's different... And, but anyway, I won't argue that point. My point is that we do have a lot of BS. Now, how do we successfully figure out 
the dog has a disease or not right now. Well, we are without GPT. What we would do is we would do a Google search. And I have like 25 years experience on doing Google searches and reading web pages and getting feelings for certain things and seeing if there's a dot org in it and seeing if Wikipedia article correlates to it. Finding someone that I've, oh, I've kind of know them before. They give, seem to give good advice. All of that stuff that I would do is a very trained way of engaging with the web as we've had it. We do not have those skills yet for these GPT type systems, but we will grow them. I don't know if we will, because, I mean, you know that you can't now do a Google search for an exact string anymore. Oh, no. Like, is that They removed? stopped that? Yeah. Like, if, you, if you put quote. something in quotes, yeah, if you put something in quotes, it, it'll give you a result, which might have one of the words switched or maybe one of the words pluralized. But, like, when I'm searching for an error message, like, uh, sh is not a file or folder or something, like, I, the sh is really important. And is not a file or folder is really important. If I put it in quotes, I expect to be able to get that string. And the reason that I do that is because I have 25 years of experience searching Google. But like these systems change and Google changes and Google might change more slowly than some of these uh, large language models or AIs that we interact with. So I think that it's actually misleading to say... Um, I know how to search the web. Like, I, I definitely am someone who would have said that. But I am starting... Th- this is a recent thought of mine. I'm starting to now doubt that I know how to search the web because things change and I know that I'm going to be overconfident because I have experience of things that have worked for me in the past. But, but you're all you're just kind of reinforcing my argument that these systems are... Anytime we engage in the world, we have to use our skills and qualities of intellect to try to figure out what's real and what's not real. And these systems are going to be very difficult because we haven't worked on them yet. But over time, we'll probably get better at it. Or they'll completely destroy our economy very, very quickly. And that's more likely the case that's in my mind. That's an orthogonal (laughs) point. Okay. So I want to talk about one more. but, But I don't think that my point reinforces your point. Because oh really no no because these systems change, so the the intuition the skills the confidence in those skills that we develop for systems that we think are static because we engage with them the same way every day but they're actually changing under the hood like this is already a problem that we have I think it's going to be an exacerbated problem with uh, AI and so I, I think I, that we're going to develop absolutely. we're going to develop skills that are actually less useful than we think they are. And we're going to be over-dependent or over-reliant or overconfident in the accuracy of these of these models, which is why yeah. I interrupted the entire conversation to say, don't use ChatGPT uh, chat for medical advice because there are already a lot of stories of things that have gone wrong. Uh, I, I, dis, I, I fundamentally disagree with your statement, Ben. Uh, I hope it's not the totally med don't. Use these, do what? <laughs> you should totally use these tools for research. Absolutely. They're and, amazing. And you think it's just the, that you have to use other things. You have to use it as part of a tool just so you can do a Google search. Do you think the average human can understand WebDB? No. That, what? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> My point is that the average human being is screwed anyway. Oof. Like what you can do on the internet, Ben, by figuring something out, most humans on the planet cannot do that. 
So why give them an even better foot gun? Well, why is not the question I have. Like the why is That's about my capitalism. And I want to get into that discussion about capitalism. But the my point is that there are amazing tools for us to, to get information. And this is a new one. And just like you're going to get fall into a, a an amass of crazy conspiracy theory stuff online, you could also be led astray by GPT. They're not very different in the way a human might follow the wrong path. I see a lot of garbage out there, and I've trained myself to have a filter for it. You I, have. Yes. And a lot of people haven't, and they get stuck up by it. And I don't think yeah, this... Yeah, and I think that WebMD is a foot gun, but they're worried about litigation, and it's really easy to, like, hedge every everything on WebMD. You just add a add a hedge statement for each one of them. I think that AI okay. is a much more powerful foot gun that people can accidentally use to get themselves in much more trouble. I found it very useful for doing research. I would believe that. Um, I want to change the tone of the, the, the place of the conversation and talk about... Um, Wait, can, can I ask Brian, did you have anything else to, to add to this? Because... I just wanted to change the topic entirely and talk about this paper that shows that um, developers that used an AI assistant to write code produced code that was less secure, but they had more confidence in the security of that code by using an AI. Uh-oh. <laughs> Anyways, I just thought it backed up everything I said. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty interesting paper. Oh, that is interesting. Send that to me. I will, I will, I will definitely I want to read that. Definitely share it with us so I can read it after this. Mm -hmm. The thing I want to talk about is the dangers of these systems and how screwed up this whole thing is going to get. <laughs> Wait, that's a topic change? <laughs> yeah. So what they can do and what they can't do and how we're going to use them is orthogonal to how they're going to be used. Um, yeah, in that's, capitalism. that's kind of the point I was trying to make before. Yeah. Yes. The problem space is that it used to be that creative endeavor, when I say creative endeavor, things that GPT seems to be able to do versus computers couldn't do before. I'm calling that creativity. It's a bad definition. Once again, we're back to bad language for what our concepts are. Totally bad language. But it used to be that if you wanted a short story that would entertain people for a few minutes, um, you had to have a human being write it. Okay? Now you can pay, um, you can pay for compute time to write it. So what these systems are doing is taking the, it used to be that if you had a lot of capital, you would hire human beings, labor force to do things for you. Um, and so therefore some of that capital would go down to the labor market, would go down to humans like us. In this new world, that does not need to happen as much. You can have capital and produce a lot of creativity without humans being involved as much. That is really scary because we don't know how a when I say scary, I mean, that's problematic because of how powerful these tools would be and humans aren't even involved in it anymore. And that's the problem. It feels like a little bit of a Marxism quality to this. And I'm kind of doing that slightly intentionally, even though I haven't really I'm not really versed in that in that language. What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, you were mentioning capitalism earlier. Um, so. There, there are people that are getting work out of this, 
that are pushed down even lower on the scale of uh, socioeconomic scale. Those are the people having to label the data that's being used for training. So we are, through this system, further continuing uh, an effect that we've seen of, of what do you call that, um, externalizing uh, the, the problems and exploiting people's labor to create a more efficient system. Even though it's, it makes terribly big mistakes, factual mistakes, it has so many problems in its use, it still fills a niche for what you call creativity, whether we're talking about images or words, that is very useful and in a capitalist society is is going to be used. I mean, my, my wife has people that she knows in the film industry that have used these image creation tools and it made things faster and they got the project done under budget or at least within the budget that they had. But once again, the, the core problem here is that we are not building the incentives and the system around our society. We're allowing people to exploit aspects of our society. So I think a just way to do this would be if it's being trained on material, uh, people who have created that material should have some economic benefit from that. And that is discussed, but no one's near making that happen. There's no legal framework that's falling into place to do that. And we already have examples through Google scraping the web for decades now and being able to do that for free and some laws being built around that concept. We, um, you know, you, you've never paid for the experience of consuming information except for when you bought a ticket to a museum or you bought books or you paid for the access to the stuff. Um, but in general, like right now, you could spend 700 lifetimes just reading what is in the open source domain online. So, um, and we've never had a methodology for making sure people got paid except for original access to those things. Well, open, um, um, open, yeah. um, what's it called? Public domain feels very different from like, I made this corpus of work and then a bunch of people asked for art in the style of Ben Jaffe. I, I agree. Like, I, I'm I think there's alive, a difference so. there. But if, if River got highly, my daughter got highly interested in the way you produce art, uh, visual art, Ben. I don't she think she would. Rel- <laughs> she could get relatively quickly be able to emulate you perfectly. Anytime I wanted to get a Ben Jaffe image, I could just ask River to do that. We would never stop her from doing that in the sense that to be, have that ability. We might stop her. We might decide that it's not appropriate for someone to copy your style and make money on it. Um, but to be able to do that, we wouldn't stop her from doing that. Mm-hmm. So there is this like this high this high thing we do in society where we say human beings can learn whatever they want to learn. That's a good thing. You know, I know how to draw Mickey Mouse. I can't make money by drawing Mickey Mouse, but I can draw Mickey Mouse. Why can't you make money? Um, because anytime you draw Mickey Mouse, it's under copyright and Disney will sue you. So because they've changed the laws over time to make it protected. And because Disney has money to sue you. Yeah. Because Disney has money. So to I, sue I'm you. curious um, if Chad G- or if uh, GPT, whatever, draws a bunch of Mickey Mouses and Disney gets pissed off. Like, I wonder if this is how this moves along. 
I think it'll probably be in the in the making money off of it, whether you make money off the the output of these systems mm-hmm. or not. But I guess my point is that um, OpenAI could pay for everybody that it's gotten data from some amount, and it could do that for ten years, and everybody would be happy. But in reality, it wouldn't affect at all what's how powerful and, and potentially bad this thing could be to society. Like the the disenfranchising and the taking care of creative taking advantage of creative people has been done it's not going to get undone there might be some repropant rep, you know might be some way of putting money back there might be some laws in place that kind of protect that idea of ownership of ideas but it's not i don't know if it's a primary concern i have because i think the systems it's much worse than that <laughs> here's the example of the thing i've been thinking about you know highly targeted ads individual ads to a person as good as the algorithms are right now that catch you on TikTok, like the, the video feeds where you get caught and caught and caught. Right now, those are all actually generated by human beings. And so they're going to partially match what's interesting to you. But over time, they'll just be created by these systems. Wait, that those are generated by human beings? Currently, TikTok stuff is being generated by human playlists? beings. Yeah. No, no, not the playlist. The actual content. Oh, the content itself that you're swiping between. So the content selection is, is AI, but the content itself is, I see. Right. The content selection is AI. It's really, really good at predictive qualities. And now it can start injecting new ones that are manufactured and it can tune the system to get better and better. These, I mean, what we're going to start seeing in the create, in the artificially created videos on TikTok will be even more captivating the current feeds. And that is scary to me because we don't even know how to deal with them now. I, I, I believe that's a, a big risk, but as a side note, I did hear a description of the um, of the TikTok algorithm, and it actually uh, is less um, <laughs> AI driven than you might think. It actually involves more randomness than uh, uh, like YouTube or something, um, because they yeah. they just worked out that they would get more engagement by and throwing more randomness in there. Anyways, but yeah. your, your point We're probably is not that. Yeah, your point still stands. And it's the ads that are the, the tricky part, because that's where the money is, right? If you can make a perfect ad for me to get an electric truck, I'll buy the electric truck. Like, I know I'm, I'm malleable in that way. And we're just, <laughs> we're not ready for systems that we're not, like, right now, if I took 50 human beings and I said, try to convince Ben to do something by controlling all the media around him, make new art, call him on the phone, engage with him, 50 human beings doing that to Ben? could make Ben do anything. Unfortunately, it's a horrible thought. I think there's limits, but I I do agree that we are the, we're highly influenced by what we surround the messages, the the input that we take in. We're huge influence. There's no doubt about that. Shapes so much of our, our mental conception of the world. Um, so yes, these, these would be, you know, AI generated content that is tuned to the engagement algorithm is a scary concept. Um, we actually have a societal mechanism to deal with this in some way, which is called government and making laws to, to try to try to rein in the worst parts of uh, stuff. The question is, can we figure that out quickly enough before it all falls down? Sorry to use you as an example, Ben. It's terrifying to put all of my hope in Washington. I don't think we, I mean, I mean, that's, yeah, that's U.S.-centric, not. but, you know, the, the equivalent, I, I don't know. I mean, 
you know, it is as much as humans engaging in corporations have been a deterrent from corporations becoming more and more dominant is pretty insignificant. It will now be less significant. Can you say that one more time? Humans are how corporations do things. And a lot of the stuff that corporations do, human beings decide to do them. You know, I do login experiences for Netflix. Without me, the login experience for Netflix is not going to work as well. It's going to improve over time because I spend time at it. Over time, and this is a bad example, programming is a bad example necessarily, but all those qualities that corporations can do with human beings, they no longer will need to do use as much human beings. And that means that they're less influenced by humanity. Is that true? Because they're optimizing against humanity. Well, they're optimizing for capital. So corporations, yeah, corporations and, and do, right? Who do they get the capital from? Peter Thiel. From human and humanity. Yeah. 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 I mean, there are, you know, some people say, there's the argument to say that we already live in a place with super intelligences. Those super intelligences are corp- companies. Corporations are super intelligences, right? They can do things above and beyond what a human being is. They have more intellect than a human being because they're made up of a lot of them. And they have a, a motivation and a, and, a, and a, you know, they have a, a motivation for themselves. So if you think of them as entities, they are super intelligences. Like, there's a pretty valid way to think about them. Super intelligences um, as defined as? can do more than a human being can do intellectually. Okay. I think of a, I think of a, a super intelligence as something that can, that, that would like uh, be able to exponentially improve its intelligence. That's a type. As opposed to like just more intelligent than humans, which I, I, I think we're right. super intelligence compared to ants, even though we can't really modify how smart we are. Like it's just a scaling factor factor in some ways. Mm. I guess what I'm saying is like uh, Google right now has thousands of employees making software, right? The amount of software it produces as an entity is more than any of us will ever do in our entire life. So it's a super software developer compared to us. If you think of it as an individual, which we do legally. And it has motivations and they're destroying the world. I mean, we already in, we already in that space. <laughs> and now they have tools that are allowed to remove humans from creativity. That's, that's just another step of them being powerful. Now, now I want to, I want to say, yeah. I want to inject something here that what you're describing is the need for less humans uh, to get a more and more optimized result. Um, now I, I've seen a similar mechanic in play in my old career in computer graphics. Um, and we, we used to talk about how appliances would give us so much free time. So in both cases, there was this idea that as the appliances got more powerful or as the computers got more powerful, we would need less artists or uh, we would need less labor in our life. But what actually happened is we continued to include as much labor in our life and artists continued to make more and more complex images with the computing power available. And, and it was a uh, equilibrium that, that didn't work out the way people were, were expecting maybe in the beginning. So the question is, yes, we'll have these tools to be more productive and efficient, 
does that mean we just make a whole lot more software? Does that mean we make a whole lot more creativity? Um, does that mean more uh, images and stuff? I, I mean, it will devalue each individual image or writing. Um, that is a concern. Uh, I don't see anything countering that. It'll also redistribute um, the people who are involved. Like, uh, like for example, so an image that I that that came to me in in thinking about this, like a metaphor that came to me in thinking about this, is if you think about if you think about each career path as a tree in this field, right? And there's some trees that are kind of close to each other. Um, because maybe you can hop from one career to another. And there are some trees that are quite far from each other. Um, tools like GPT, whatever number, are effectively sawing the bottom branches off of many of these trees. So it's very hard to get into these trees now because it's hard to make a living doing, you know, basic or not as good uh, programming or whatever it may be right it also means that we have less of a less of a safety net for people who fall out of whatever tree they're in because they can't go to another tree that's easier to climb and climb it right um and it's true that ai is affecting different industries in different ways and some industries mm -hmm. it's not going to affect as much right like ai ai is not the same as robotics as much as the movies like us to think that that they are right, right. and generally speaking robot robots are still mainly used for moving very heavy things more quickly than humans could right so like if, if your job can't be done 100 percent on a computer then you're okay uh you're safer you're safer um you'll still have value yeah uh, i mean <laughs> i wouldn't put those words in my mouth but um <laughs> But yeah, that's that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about this shift. I, I don't want to sound too like gloom and doom because I also think there's going to be amazing things that come out of this. One, for example, is um, the embodiment of being human, the quality of actually being in a space with other humans, um, talking, breathing the same air, hopefully without COVID, um, and listening to the environment you're in and seeing nature. All of those things will be as important as they've ever been to human beings. And I mean, I, I, I have an instinct that as we make all stuff coming out of computers uh, extremely prolific to the point that's potentially overwhelming, it won't have as much meaning in some ways. There'll be some lack of, of meaning the more there is. And I think we've already kind of like that like how many streaming services are you connected to how much content can you actually watch there is so much content right now it's a bit overwhelming the the system we're in the capitalist system we're in we need to be able to make a living to climb the ladder as as been described um, so is the problem automating that away with a ai or is the problem the society and the economic structure we're in the interesting thing is with all of the generative AI images, text, if we got to the point where 99% of our content was generated through it, we're not, it's, it's all derivative and we're not adding more to the pie from which it will derive. And therefore 
I, the way I see it, tell me if you think I'm wrong, it would just become, uh, it, we wouldn't advance creatively in our images and our text. We would be stuck in this pool that we're not adding to because we, nobody can get enough value out of adding to it. I unfortunately disagree with you. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, two things. One is attribution, I think, is going to be very important, and I think we're going to fail at it. So uh, these systems these systems are uh, only as good as their training data, right? If their output becomes the next system's training data, then I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it low quality, but it, it definitely has a lack of variability, right? Um, so if you if you decide to put a bunch of spam junk out there on the internet, right? Just like articles or, or whatever. And you spend, I don't know, $100,000 doing that for whatever ends you're trying to accomplish. Well, now that, if it's not able to be attributed to your algorithm or to an algorithm, that is now the tra part of the training data for the next thing. And so, I don't know, like the the training data for the next algorithms is going to be overrepresented based off of what the financial incentives are for the production of that, right? That's one. I think we're saying the same thing. Wait, which is nothing different that's been going on for 100 years. How so? Nothing's different about that statement. Because human beings are creative based on the environment they live in and what they experience. Yeah, but... And most of us experience a lot of the same media. And so we produce similar stuff. We're not snowflakes. We're just... Don't, but don't you think there's a difference in volume? Have you gone and seen a, sh uh, a movie that's like kind of predictive and dumb, but everybody watched yeah, it? Yeah, like most movies. There you go. No, that, that's, that's what we do. But that's not my argument. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying is that we already are making content that's kind of crap that trains people to make content that's kind of crap. We do that. That's human beings experience. A lot of what we produce is uninteresting drivel. And then sometimes things are like, wow, that's really neat. And then the zeitgeist goes around it to then make that be the baseline for the next phase. Like, I don't see, any, like, I guess where I come from is what they're do, what the systems are going to do compared to what humans are going to do. I don't see a difference. The difference is that if I have a million dollars and I discover how to make a hundred million dollars by spamming everyone on the internet, I can do that with AI. Oh yeah. And with compute. But 50 years ago, I couldn't. 50 years ago, the outsized impact that I can make as a crappy human with a lot of money, it, it's like, yeah. it's so, it's orders of magnitude larger today. Fully agree. And we would probably be saying the exact same thing about spam email, uh, you know, back when we were recording GeekSpeak in 2005 or 2010. But the difference is that spam email was not the training data for the next systems that we rely upon. The current way we're going to be doing these back propagation training sets on large data sets versus how we're going to do it in the future where a lot of the output is these systems is definitely going to be different. We will get to the point where we train models to be better to produce new content, not just on the data set. Like there'll be, there'll be um, what is it called? Confrontational systems that make each other better. Like we're, we're just seeing the very beginning of this capability. So that idea, like I, I used to be in that space of like, well, without humans being creative, this system won't be able to get any better. 
So if all the creativity starts happening with systems, then people won't be putting creative stuff online because it'll be dwarfed and therefore the system will never get better. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, well, I don't know how I get a creative thought. I get a creative thought by experiencing a lot of things and I see something I like and see something else I like and I kind of mix it together. Kind of like my creativity is like puns. (laughs) They're just a mishmash of how I involve myself. But it really becomes uh, dangerous when you have a quick... um feedback cycle of something like you were describing with TikTok. Then that's the problem set is that we're really good at having like the current way, maybe TikTok simplistic, but the way Facebook, for example, runs uh, showing things to different groups of people and getting people to stay longer online is using the content that is generated by the people and trying to do that system. We're really good when we have content, we have a lot of eyeballs to train the content better and better. Now we can actually recreate the content and specialize the content on your area all the ads you'll see will be about where you live and about the kind of music you like and it'll be very hard to not get swooed by it because just imagine five artists making content directly for you and what it would feel like and we're going to see that yeah there's gonna be a plethora of that kind of content and the shame Um, of it is the monetary gain out of this is by appealing to our it's the right way to say it the baser instincts the 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 Mm -hmm. base pleasures as opposed to a system tuned around creating knowledge and creating us into being better thinkers. I mean, all of that is possible. It's just, there's no, not a great uh, incentive for somebody to put the effort into building that system. I was thinking about injection molding. What's injection molding? Yeah. You know, if you pick up a power tool, like a drill or something, the case of that thing's an injected molding case. It's everywhere. All, all stuff that's made of plastic, basically, pretty much all stuff that's made of plastic besides um, uh, plastic bags and things. Anything that's firm that's made of so plastic you make is a, basically injected. You make mold. a mold of metal or something like that, and then you just shoot a bunch of plastic goo into the mold, and then you let it dry really quickly. And you have an object. And then you have a thing. Yeah. Of, uh, yes. And these things are highly efficient at making cheap stuff, and that's why we have such amazing cheap stuff. Plastic things on Amazon are just everywhere. Chairs and furniture and everything you can possibly imagine is made by this technique. And it's completely removed the, uh, you know, somebody with a hand plane in a workshop making a chair. Like it's just those aren't there anymore. It's all this mechanic process. But the, the reason I'm thinking about that is that how that changed how our world was wasn't really thought about when injection molding was started getting cheap and cheap and cheap. Right. It just kind of slowly happened. And we got really good quality, cheap things. They weren't like amazing, but over time, the price point of the system got to the point where like, let's not make stuff that will last more than five years. And then you always can make stuff like that, that composting quality of capitalism. I don't know if those things are necessarily connected though. I don't think they're necessarily, you could definitely use injection molding to make amazingly strong, durable products. And you could also do planned obsolescence before injection molding. Absolutely, and people do even with non-plastic pieces. But I think we but, hadn't I guess realized my... how much money was in it. But a yeah. a um, petrol-based uh, plastic uh, material injection molded with big machines only makes sense at a large scale. Once again, which is what we're talking about with automating with AI. And that's kind of why I make this connection: is that we have a plethora of plastic cheap stuff. We're about to have a plethora of creative endeavor. And that's very different in my mind to how our culture works then. But maybe not. Maybe it's very similar. Maybe it's just it's just like that. You know, you'll just have a lot of cheap content, too, like we have cheap furniture. 
The point I was making earlier is not a point that I'm making very strongly, but it is a, a, a it's definitely a concern about attribution because if you don't know what is made by these systems, then the systems eventually could just feedback loop themselves into an interesting place. And if we rely on those systems, then that's really probably not a good thing. Um, Let's, but the, to answer uh, uh, the, the other thing that you were saying, Brian, uh, we we can get novelty if if we just have AI systems that are trained off of let's say the music of of the last I don't know 250 years or something like that right um, because if you inject randomness into it and then your system that's evaluating whether it's any good is humans and you know Spotify or whoever or, or environment puts um, or environment or environment as in or environment as in as in like what um the way the way Dar- darwinistic selection works oh i see env- you call it you call it environment i see i see our culture is like that too right the environment is the not just the humans that like it but the amount of humans that like it that will pay for it in some way so that you can then produce more of it right yeah and so there there may be an evolution of basically through uh <laughs> i guess you could call it natural selection and random mutation or semi-random mutation um, also, I, I feel like capitalistic direct, directed uh, mutation. musical fashion is circular, just like fashion in general. I, I've just noticed a lot of 80s tropes uh, being introduced into pop music as if they're brand new. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I also kind of wonder, I also kind of wonder about that. Let's uh, we we kind of glossed over something I think is really um, important, and I think Brian, you're mentioning what Melanie um, is kind of concerned about. I think all of us are concerned about is these systems stole our culture, and these corporations that had open AI basically stole our culture and put it into a system that can reproduce our culture. Stole or like and by, by stole you mean like monetized? Took. We can say took. We can say pirated. We can say has a copy of. It doesn't matter how it got it. It's just, it could even be legal. It's just that it used our, some aspect of, large aspect of, of human culture to train a set so that it can reproduce that culture. Right. And and when I say culture, I'm also, I mean, creative endeavor. There's all these loose terms, like, we, like Brian said, we don't have good language around any of this stuff. So I'm just using the terms to, the conversation will bring across these meanings better than any of these phrases we're actually using. But um, the point is that, I also am doing that all the time. Everything I watch and look at engages and changes how I engage in the world. We, I don't think we have a soul. I don't think we just are experiencing the world and changing. Uh, our brain gets changed and who we are gets changed by what we engage with. So if I spend a long time reading French literature from the 1600s, then I will be more about that. You'll be better at and French too. I'll probably be better at French or old French. But I guess my, my point is that no one's going to say it's problematic for me to look at all of Pixar's work and then create derivative work of Pixar's work. There's nothing wrong with that because I'm a human being and human beings can do what they want. In fact, company, now, companies have, in cases, embraced that because it makes their own product more valuable as it becomes more part of the culture. Fandom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Disney's famously not done a good job of that until, you know, more recently. So the, the reason it's problematic to train and create derivative work is because it's not embodied by a human? Is that why these things are... No, 
It's because it can do it on a scale no single human can do. If I grabbed a hundred artists, let's say I was a billionaire and I just was able to hire like 700 artists to completely produce content that's very similar to Pixar and actually even has like would you would be hard pressed to say this came out of Pixar Studios versus it came out of this new billion into billion, you know, industry thing. Um, would that be wrong for that company to do that? that I mean, that? you would be producing four orders of magnitude less content using four orders of magnitude more money. I'm not I'm not I'm not talking about how much money I put into it. I'm talking about if I were to create a, an entity that really produced content that was really, really good, that was 3D animation, had that kind of zeitgeist of Pixar's content. I'm using that as an example because it's successful and people like going to see those movies. And also there's another company that's doing those kind of movies and they spend a lot of money to do it. Is it problematic for them to kind of emulate that style and produce many videos? No, because they're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is a thing. <laughs> it's totally DreamWorks. No, no, but but the... And, and you take a look at the two corpuses of work. They're, they are definitely distinct, but mm-hmm. they're totally. Distinct. But the um, they're playing on the same ground rules. They have the same mechanisms they ha- that are at their disposal. And, and the artists are the same. They always swap back and forth, right? People work at both companies. Like, so the reason why this is problem not problematic is not about emulating culture and reproducing it. That's not the reason it's a problem. It's because there's something different about a computer doing it. I disagree. I mean, I don't know if I disagree with the full statement, but I definitely disagree that because you, you, it feels like you put a, it feels like you put a statement in our mouth or my mouth at least. It, it feels, it feels like you turned it into a value judgment. Well, that's what I think it is. I think it's a value judgment because all of us are always copying from the culture that we're in. That's how creative work happens. All artists look at other art and make stuff that's unique, and they're building it from all the experience they've had in their culture. And when you buy a painting or go to a Pixar or DreamWorks movie and you give them money, are you doing it just to receive the benefit of viewing it? Or being a part of the culture? What? What's the other alternative? If you're going and buying a painting from a gallery, you might be supporting the painter. You might be supporting the studios that made the movie. It may be part of your motivation is to make sure that continues to exist and grow. Right. Um, And my, my, my point is um, there, there is more at play than just wanting content. And when you have a machine that can produce even medium quality content at a massive scale, uh, it changes an equation that's basic to our culture. Yep. And so well, the value judgment you seem to be creating was that we're, you know, bias against machines or uh, racist against, uh, uh yeah, are you a machine? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I, I think that misses the point because the point is uh-huh. not what our bias against the machine is. The point is what it will do to our culture and our society and, uh, the way we live. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. That that was more eloquently stated than I was about to. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like, I, I think the reason I'm poking at this, I feel like too much people are saying, you can't just look at other people's work and produce new work like that. That's not okay. Yeah, it is. If it's a human doing it, it's totally mm-hmm. fine. So it's not about the theft of the idea and the intellect. It's about a machine that can do it at scale. That's the problem. It's... It, because if I'm emulating some artist and I do a really good job of it, 
people will buy paintings from me. They'll know they're not the originals, but they might like them because I'm copying Kandinsky or something um, in my own style, slightly different, right? I could get really good at it. People might really like them. And there's nothing really wrong with that from a human experience. The issue is the scale problem. And right. that's, that is a problem. But the, I guess what I'm saying is it's not really about the training data. I don't really know if that's the right way to think about it. There, there may be a better way to think about it that we can fit this into our culture in an equitable and, and beneficial way. Um, it's, it's interesting that we all know instinctually that it's wrong. <laughs> I just try to figure out why we know that. Because we, we are not transactional creatures. We are motivated by more than just getting something. We, we want our culture to grow. We want to be a part of the culture. I think it's interesting that, like when we're talking about the scale being the problem here, this is kind of like saying, all right, you've got a group of four kids in front of you and you give them rules for how they want to play. And then you turn around and there's a group of 4,000 kids. You can't just give the same rules and expect the same outcome, right? Like there is some sort of a fundamental difference when when you multiply something, when you scale something by several orders of magnitude. And the thing that's fascinating to me about that is that it, th there's not, those are not different conceptually. But there is some sort of a phase change that happens somewhere, somewhere along the line, right? Um, so when you're talking about an individual who's making derivative work, or you're talking about a millionaire who is having uh, a, th a thousandaire, who's having 10 people make derivative work, or you're thinking about a millionaire who's making a thousand people make derivative work, or you're talking about someone who works at OpenAI who's having 10 million AIs make derivative work, like somewhere along there, it gets wrong to me and i don't know if i can exactly draw a clear line in the sand i'm maybe i might be able to if i think about it a little bit harder but i think it's interesting that it's very clearly wrong at the far end of the scale yeah and it's very clearly okay at the other far end of the scale i think this has to do with how our society thinks about power dynamics and value and I think we all know kind of instinctually that it's we don't do it the right way. We have a very rich 10% of the planet people that control these large entities that have a lot of power. And we all know that's kind of wrong. And now we're going to face with it at a very different level. And it feels like it, it could be if, if this goes well for humanity and my wishes, if you will, if you want to go into the space where it's like, I'm hoping it is a large backlash to what we value in the, in the world and that we map it back down to human beings. Like I, I don't want corporate entities to have power like that. I want human beings to be the primary value, the health and flourishing of individuals. That should be somehow our metric for a successful society. If this somehow migrates to that method methodology, I think we're, we're set. I don't see any way it's going to, but I would hope that that's going to occur. Um, and then you get into, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, it's going to Star Trek universe kind of thing, right? Where everybody's needs are taken care of um, at a base level and people can just be creative as they want to and the systems serve them. Post-scarcity utopia. Yeah, I, I think it's a pipe dream, but it's also a tool we've never had before. Coming back to your point, though, Brian, like, 
we've had these we've had these transformations with like dishwashers or whatever uh and we have not seen the changes we were hoping for out of we are not sitting around working five hours a week we're not seeing more leisure in fact we're seeing less leisure and you know who is squeezing that out of us as a population And who has control of the large language models? You know, like it's... <laughs> I so wanted to end on a happy note, a possible hope note. Well, either of you have any thoughts on I that I mean, space? part of the problem is who's sitting around dreaming how to use these tools to make that better world? You were talking about research, Lyle, how it could benefit research. I mean, I've gotten a lot of benefit out of my little experiment so far, and I can see taking it further. We just need to change the rules of our society or of our economy to encourage more of that, right? You know, we haven't done a good job on compensating some of the most important human activity. Teaching is a great example of this, right? We don't map our capitalistic power structure around teachers getting benefit. That's not how we do it. We don't map it around people that raise children. Like, we don't say that has a lot of value in our capitalistic society, right? And we also don't do it in government. You know, most of the time, government employees are paid kind of below market for the kind of work they, they do. It is possible that one of the reasons why the system, like why maybe our local government doesn't work as efficiently as it could, is because we underpay um, for people and they're all stressed trying to get things done and they just get things done at a, at a bare minimum. And maybe these tools will allow... Uh, you know, local governments to be more efficient, more functional. That could benefit all of us. Mm-hmm.